0: you would, turn to your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 15, just one of a few texts we're going to be examining today, so as you get there, I wanted to do, we, we the elders, wanted to do some messages as you prepare for our study through Philippians uh, on important issues in terms of body life and our life. As believers, just practical, very important foundational uh, truths and issues we wanted to explore. And so as we prepare to get into Philippians, I really felt that this is a particular truth that needs to be examined and understood by all of us. This is not simply an issue sola scriptura of high Theological thinking, something way out there, like Sola Scriptura, philosophically speaking, and it's way out there. And, you know, if you're reading Bob Vink, it gets deep and it gets heavy and all the rest. And some people might say, well, I'll check out, I accept the truth. This is something that meets us at every moment of every single day. This particular truth, Sola Scriptura, is really the foundation from which everything else. ...in your theology comes from, sola scriptura, it's the ground, that truth that holds everything else up. This is not simply something that's for the theological debate in terms of Roman Catholicism... ...versus Protestantism or Reformed theology. Uh, The truths underneath sola scriptura really go into all aspects of life and sanctification... The issues of how we live and move in this world today in our communities, issues regarding the state and its power, uh, philosophical issues uh, between Christianity and atheism, uh, all, all issues come really down to the truths contained within Sola Scriptura. So this is something that will meet all of us every single day in every aspect of our lives. So it's a very important truth and a particular text to start with today, just to give some footing here is the gospel according to Matthew chapter 15 it's a controversy between the Lord Lord Jesus and the Pharisees and scribes and it has to do with something that would be seen essentially as a divine tradition handed down it was authoritative you have to obey this this is the teaching of the elders you got to obey this this is what the church has taught essentially in the Jewish church of that era And so this is how the Lord Jesus handles a controversy between a tradition of men and the Word of God. How do we test? How do you know what's ultimate? So Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, Hear now the words of the living and the true God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you... Break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let's pray together. Father, I pray, please bless today. Lord, um, I'm not worthy to be up here teaching this, and I only cling to Christ. And this glorious and amazing truth is something that your people need to know and understand. So I pray that you'd work through a jar of clay like me. Teach your people. Lord, use this message from your word to firm up our commitments to your word, to your voice as the center, as the reference point, as the foundation. Help us, God, guard us from error. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor James is talking about how he will look at me and from the, from the uh, congregation and give me. It is hard, I will say, having your teacher and your hero and your mentor always sort of sitting there watching you in the front row as you're teaching. It's really not fair. <laughs> but there's another, there's a flip side to that coin. Because he's my teacher, my mentor, my hero of the faith, and all the rest, if anything is wrong in what I'm teaching, you can blame him. So. <laughs> <laughs> So, there you go. Um, I want to talk about this. I know this is a condensed thing here. We're doing a standalone message on a very important subject. Now, there are a lot of resources that you need to have in your library on this subject, and I really hope that you get them because you need to have this particular truth, this pillar holding everything up. You need to have it in your mind, in your heart. You need to know why. You need to know where. Where does it say that in the Bible? How do I know that this is true? This particular truth, we need to be ready to defend and, I will say, die for. Yes, this is one of those truths. Some truths are peripheral truths or doctrines are things we can uh, argue over as Christians. They're not things that you want to cut your brother or sister's throat on, cut their legs off. You don't want to destroy your brother and sister over. There are certain things that we want to hold with a very loose grip. This is not one of those things. This is a truth you must be willing to die for. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church. It's very important to know this truth. Again, why do we believe it? Where does it say that? Now, I'm going to talk about the importance of this particular study. Again, single, standalone message, so much. Get these books into your library. Sola Scriptura by Pastor James White. Uh, there's another book. It's very good. A lot of different essays in the book. It's, uh, I think it's called Sola Scriptura. Uh, Dr. White has an essay in there. R.C. Sproul. Just a bunch of guys. Very important. Uh, you need to get William Webster and David King's uh, three-volume set on sola scriptura there's a biblical defense of it there's a historical uh, overview of the doctrine itself in history three volume set have it in your library take your time Uh, so again one standalone message is not enough to do justice so I want to do a smattering of things and talk about the importance where does it say that all the rest but it's important because we need to not assume that everyone knows or understands this doctrine so we talk about reformed theology we talk about the solas of the reformation sola scriptura is in there solas Christus sola gratia sola fide soli deo gloria these we, t- we say are the, the the five solas we say these are pillars you're going to know these and we glory in these truths and we ought to glory in these truths because they come from the word of God but I think it's important because like I said at the beginning of service today whoever thought that Calvinism would be cool right a reformed theology would be cool it's interesting because we have seen over the last decade sort of some moments where this becomes sort of a cultural thing reformed theology the five solos who we wear the t-shirts we get the mugs you know all the rest it's it's sort of a movement that's a community and a culture rather than something that's really centered around because what god says here and here and here there was a richness to the Reformation. The Christians who were protesting what had happened in Rome and what they were now teaching, they, they weren't just part of a, a crew that said, This is my clique. We believe these things because we, we just happen to like these truths. This was deep theology they were doing. This was deep, rich, very, very focused theology that they were doing. If you read some of the writings and arguments of the reformers at the time when they were debating against, say, Erasmus or any of the best that Rome had to offer, It's hard to follow some of those arguments because they are so rich, so deep, so detailed. A lot of times you just get overwhelmed with the wealth of biblical argumentation, logical argumentation, and commitments to scripture. It's some deep, deep stuff, but for them, it wasn't the cool click. It was because this is something you die for. Why? Because Jesus taught it, because Paul taught it, because Peter taught it. This is something that preserves the life and health of the church, the people of God. Not simply because it was a clique or a community or because it was cool or because it was something fancy you put on a t-shirt. They weren't marketing this. It was something that came from Scripture, and it was, again, something worth dying over. Now, we need to, again, understand the importance of not assuming that everyone knows or understands this doctrine. I was reminded of this fairly recently when we were on our mission to Salt Lake City, Utah. We were there. We did, of course, the famous uh, uh, coolant debate with the atheists, which was fun. Uh, Dr. White is uh, a little bit crazy, and so he stacks these debates and talks right on top of each other. So we had to talk one night with a very well-known Latter-day Saint scholar, and then he had a discussion the very last night with a man by the name of Lee Baker, who was... For a long time, a well-known name in the uh, ex-Latter-day Saint community. He was a Latter-day Saint that converted to Christianity. And uh, almost immediately, he was taken as sort of a celebrity and a star. He was once a Mormon. Now he denies it. He talks about all the ways that it's wrong and it's false. And he demonstrates that it's false. And now he's a Christian. And, uh, you know, he's a Christian, so he must believe all the things that are fundamental to the Christian faith, the Trinity, justification through faith, the importance of Sola Scriptura. And what was clear in that debate is that Lee Baker has now apostatized from Christianity, so from Mormonism to Christianity, to some version of Judaism today. And in that debate, it was during the question and answer time period. You can go listen to it for yourself. It's on our channel, Apologia Studios. When he's questioning Pastor James over uh, the issue of Sola Scriptura, he brings it up and he calls it Sola Scripturas, twice. So he doesn't even pronounce it properly. But then as he tries to define it, he doesn't really even understand the doctrine itself. But he said that he was on a radio program one time as a, quote, Christian, and he was asked to defend the truth of Sola Scriptura. Now, if he doesn't know it today, 20 years later, he certainly didn't know it then either. So we have to uh, make sure that we understand these truths, and it's not simply a cultural thing that you adopt. Same thing happened with this apostate, and that's what he is. I don't mean that as an offensive term. It's someone who's left and abandoned their profession of faith in Jesus, an apostate. He also didn't understand the Trinity. When he was debating the issue of the Trinity or trying to bring it up against Pastor James in the debate over the text of Scripture, interesting... Uh, he was talking about how the Old Testament mentions that there is only one God 80-some-odd times, over and over and over again. There's only one God. There's only one God. And you, Pastor James, you believe in the Trinity. (laughs) The Bible says there's one God. And every Christian in history who knows the doctrine of the Trinity is going, Huh? That's how you start articulating the doctrine of the Trinity monotheism strict monotheism there is only one true and living god none before and none after and yet here's a man who was taken in by the christian communities in utah propped up and said this man now represents christianity and he doesn't understand today the doctrine of the trinity or sola scriptura didn't understand it So the question has to be asked. Do you understand these truths? Do you know why you believe them? Do you believe them just because when you came into church, when you got saved, you heard people talking about, we believe the Trinity. So you said, okay, great. We believe the Trinity. Do you believe Sola Scriptura because you came to a Reformed church and you said, "Uh, this is cool. I like this. And apparently beer for the young, restless, and Reformed. And so uh, Sola Scriptura, believe that. Great. Sola Gratia. Don't quite know how to pronounce that but got that too. So fine got the five solas put it on the t-shirt I've adopted it. That's not why we believe these things. I believe in Sola Scriptura because Jesus did I believe in Sola Scriptura because that's what the apostles held to I believe in the Trinity because the Bible teaches it not because Church history shows that the Christian church has always held up the doctrine of the Trinity and fought against error with the Trinity and all those things. And that's the, the essential part of Christian faith and confession. That God is triune. One God. Eternally existent. Three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe the Trinity because of the church simply declaring by their own authority. This is the truth. We have to believe in the Trinity because God says in his word. Now... There are a myriad of voices, a lot of voices, every single day we're going to come into conflict with. So who are you going to believe? You're going to believe Joseph Smith? He claims God spoke to him. How do you know that God didn't speak to Joseph Smith? How about Charles Taze Russell? How about Judge Rutherford, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society? How about Islam? Is Muhammad a prophet or no? How about Roman Catholicism? If you read the Council of Trent, they make specific declarations about justification. Are they right or are they wrong? Was that official apostasy for Rome or are they right? How do you know? There's a myriad of voices. Will you listen to Eastern Orthodoxy today? Popular movement of people departing to Eastern Orthodoxy, not understanding many times as you listen to them, these particular truths from scripture a myriad of voices or how about we go to other elements because we get the religious claims right we talk about uh mormonism we go okay get the bible out for that i understand that scripture is going to refute that i use the word of god there jehovah's witnesses come to your door or they're at sky harbor airport it it, it, weird um the other day i was walking through and jehovah's witnesses i'm like this is an awesome opportunity i'm going to be here all the time um Jehovah's Witnesses. We get it. Get the Bible out. They come to your door. I'm ready to go. Islam. We get it. Roman Catholicism. Eastern Orthodoxy. But how about other questions that Sola Scriptura actually does connect to? How about the claims of Alcoholics Anonymous? How about the claims of Alcoholics Anonymous? Is addiction a disease? Is it merely a brain disease of addiction? They make all kinds of claims in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sola Scriptura does actually relate to that as well. Do I listen to the voice of Dr. Bob about addiction ultimately, or do I listen to the voice of God in his word about our nature, what the problem of addiction is, how do we define addiction, how do we get free from addiction ultimately? We have to also ask the question related to other issues, like how how about the Constitution? Is the Constitution ultimate, How do we know what's right about the Constitution and what may be wrong about the Constitution? How do we know how to properly define those things? Sola Scriptura actually relates to that as well in terms of how do I know the truth? What's ultimate? How about the issue related to Roe v. Wade? How do we define life? Is it true that we can uh, (coughs) execute a child in the womb? Is that the image of God or no? Do we see that as ultimate? Or do we obey God rather than men? These questions can go on and on, but these do relate to us and they touch every aspect of our lives. We need to answer this question, of course, in two ways. Again, standalone message. I'd love to do this for six weeks, but standalone message. We need to answer the question biblically and philosophically, biblically and philosophically. Now, a quick definition. If you haven't written it down, if you don't know it, a quick definition is sola scriptura, is the claim that scripture alone is the sole? listen closely very important don't lose this because people that apostatize away from the faith and fall into other areas seem to always miss these specific words scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the church the sole infallible, without error, rule of faith and practice for the church. Now, if you've been in Apology of Church for really any bit of time, you know that at Apology of Church, we do our catechism every Sunday. We're a confessional church. 1689 all the way, baby. 1689, London Baptist Confession of Faith. We have a rule of faith that we actually go over. Every Lord's Day before uh before the message itself we talk about uh, catechism question and answer but we always go back to the scripture and memorize scripture together. So, we know that there are actually other rules of faith. We use them. The Westminster Confession of Faith Christians have used in history, the 1689 difference, ours is better. Um that was a joke for all the presbyterians in the audience. You know I love you. Okay. You guys are like, it's better because you copied it. But um, you also have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. You have confessions. Christians have rules of faith. So, did you hear it? Sola Scriptura is the teaching that Scripture alone is the sole, listen, infallible, without error, rule of faith and practice for the church. So, here it is. Ready? Taking notes. What Sola Scriptura does not teach us? Listen closely, these are important elements to this truth. Sola Scriptura does not teach us that there aren't other rules of faith possible. Again, Westminster, you've got um, the 39 Articles of Faith of the Anglican Church when it was doing basically all right. and You see some solid truths in there. You see a rule of faith there, confessions of faith. Again, in history, you've got the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, all these different creeds that are solid, beautiful, amazing things. And why, or how do you know they're amazing and beautiful and wonderful? Because they're articulated that way, because it's historic, because the church believed it. You know that it's wonderful because it's based on the truth of Scripture, the Word of God. There can be rules of faith like the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. However, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is only true insofar that it actually agrees with the infallible rule of faith, the Word of God. Now, what does Sola Scriptura also not teach us? It does not teach us that we can't learn from church history. When we say scripture alone, we're not saying, as Pastor James often says, that we have just us and ourselves under a tree with our Bible. Nobody else around, just us, just me. My own interpretation, this is the only thing, me and the Bible. That's not sola scriptura, even in history. That's not what Christians have meant by sola scriptura, that it's just you and your Bible off on your own, and you don't even have the benefit of the church, don't need the benefit of the church, you don't need teachers. That's not sola scriptura. If you believe that scripture alone is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, then you go to that Bible and what does it say Jesus did? He created a church and what did he give? He gave apostles. What else? He gave teachers, right? What else? He gave administrators and people who are evangelists and all the rest. God gives us the church. He gives you pastors with authority, local authority, not ultimate authority in the church. You see that, so when we say sola scriptura, we do not mean, and this is, by the way, let's make a confession as people who would be historically called protestants, which is what we are, let's make a confession. People have perverted and distorted this particular doctrine to the degree that you've got people, I know people personally, who have faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. They say that they're saved, but they haven't been a part of a church in 40, 45, 50 years. They never cross the doors. Why? Well, because all I need is the Bible. That's it. Just Jesus, me, and the Bible. The Word of God. That's it. I don't need the benefit of the church. None of those things. Sola Scriptura does not teach that we cannot learn from church history. It does not teach that the church is insignificant. We need to remember this. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Giants. Better men and better women than we are and we can learn from church history and this is a beautiful thing please hear me on this This it's one of my favorite things honestly about the word of god and the church and what takes place in history so if you've checked out come back for a minute because i absolutely love this i'm thrilled about it the church is filled with the spirit of god amen yes jesus says i won't leave you as orphans i'll be with you he gives us the spirit of god the spirit of god indwells us he guides us into all truth That's the role of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God that Jesus was talking about, God, the Spirit, He's given to the church. He guides the church. He protects the church. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit of God has not left the earth. He didn't reappear during the time of the Reformation. The Spirit of God has been active in the church through its duration, guiding and protecting, teaching and training the church. So when we look in history, you're going to see fallible men and women saying some amazingly truthful things through the power and direction of the spirit of God. You're going to see inconsistencies. This is really important. Oftentimes you hear people talking about church history and they'll talk about the fathers, right? All the church fathers, a second century, third century church father. It's interesting. That was 200 years after Christ. That's the church infancy, right? Those are that we should call them the church babies Right the church history babies, right? If you want to talk about it in terms of like the work of the Spirit of God And all that God does to sanctify his church. We need to be cautious Elevating church fathers to the status of authority next to the apostles. Everyone hear me on that? That is vital These are fallible men at times who in some places you'll see them saying things that are glorious amazing consistent with Jesus and at other times, you'll see the, the early uh, infants of the church, the church fathers, you'll see them saying things that you're like, um, okay, that was weird, right? So you're going to be cautious, not elevating fallible men to the status of ultimate authority. However, we at Apologia Church, you'll hear us often quoting from amazing men of God in history that even died for their faith and the glorious truths that they were reciting at the beginning of the second century. It's amazing. It's a blessing. This is one of my favorite things. <clears throat> if you look at the debates taking place in the second century of the church, all right, so not long after Christ died and rose again and ascended and was seated, not long after the destruction of Jerusalem, if you look at some of the early debates in the infancy of the church, whether it was Christians debating against the Gnostics or whether it was Christians debating against the Marcionites, or as Christians debating against Sibelius, whatever the case was in the second century of the church, I challenge you on this point. When you listen to their debates or watch or read their debates and their defense of the Trinity or their their fight against um, Marcionism or whatever the case was, I challenge you. Would you rather today in the 21st century, would you rather debate alongside, say, a James White on the Trinity or a Michael Brown on the Trinity or whatever the case may be, or would you rather stand side by side with Tertullian and do that debate? I'll tell you, praise God for his sanctification in the church. Please hear me on this. This is very, very big. God, as he gets his people around his word, we get into the word of God and we are sharpened. We are challenged because we have gifted teachers We get powerful insights to the Word of God as time goes on. The Spirit of God sanctifies, grows the church through the Word of God. But listen to this. Praise God for the heretics. In His sovereignty, God allows false teachers and heretics to actually at times infiltrate the church or war against the church. And because of that... The church gets around the Word of God and we're able to be sharper in our communication of divine truths because of the error. So, for example, in the second century of the church, when you see Christians debating, fighting with the truth of the Trinity against error like Sabellianism or whatever the case may be, when you listen to their arguments, they're not as sharp or as clear as they were by the time you get around the error of Arius or the time we are in now where you have Christians who have the whole history of the church behind us and the church gathering around the Bible, we're able to now sharply communicate these truths about the Trinity in a way that is even better than when we were in the infancy of the church. So Sola Scriptura does not teach that we can't, as Christians, grow on the basis of the Word of God sharper in our communication of the Word of God. What Sola Scriptura does say Sola Scriptura does say that the nature of Scripture is that it is one, God breathed. That is the nature of Scripture. God breathed. Help me out here now. Where's the verse that says Scripture is God breathed? Well, I know. Okay, now look at you guys, fancy Apologians. You guys are like, that's Theonoustas, Pastor Jeff. I know that one. I know some Greek. Yeah, okay. What is it in Greek? It is what? Theanustos. And what does it mean, breathed out by God? But what's the, what's the reference? 2 Timothy 3.16, you need to know the reference. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is theonustos, it is breathed out by God. The picture there is you put your hand in front of your face and as you're talking, To your hand, you feel the breath hitting your palm that is breathed out. So when scripture talks about the word of God, it says all scripture is theonustos. It is breathed out by God. So what is scripture? It's from the mouth of God. It's God's revelation. It is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. That's the nature of it. How about the origin of scripture? The origin of scripture. I want you guys to go in your Bibles, and I want you to go to Peter's epistles. So, number one, we talk about the nature of Scripture as God breathed. And as you go to your Bibles to... um, 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, you'll see verse 16, very important from the apostle here, chapter 1 verse 16, 2 Peter 1 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was... For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. catch that? What's he talking about? He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Can you imagine being there for that? The Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, Peter's saying here, his testimony is this. Look, I was there. I was a witness to this. I got to be there and see it. Here's my testimony. But what does Peter actually say? He says in verse 18, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have, here it is, By the Holy Spirit. So here the apostle is comparing his witness on the Mount of Transfiguration and what he actually saw, but he says there's something more sure. What is that? The Word of God, which comes from the Holy Spirit of God. Holy men of God spoke, some translations say, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we know from Paul that Scripture is God-breathed. We know from the Apostle Peter that Scripture, its origin, is from the Holy Spirit of God. People are carried along by the Holy Spirit to write or say what they wrote or said. We know that Sola Scriptura does say that Scripture is the infallible rule. It's the infallible reference point for all questions regarding truth. Here it is. Are you ready? This is the nuts and bolts of it. God spoke. God spoke. That's why I believe it. So I think we're afraid of that today. In my radio debate that I had with Andy Stanley, we were talking about the issues of God's law today in the life of the believer. One of the things that was like like a quick clip that was passed around a lot. Andy Stanley was getting kind of frustrated at a particular point he wasn't using a lot of scripture to demonstrate his position, but at a t- particular point, he got kind of frustrated. He's like, all right, why, why do you believe? Like, wh- why? Why do you believe what you believe? And I said, the word of the living God. And he was like, all right, I guess. Like, we're afraid to say that today as evangelicals, as Protestants. It seems like we're afraid to actually have that as the starting point why do you believe what you believe? Because God says. Why, why do you believe that over here in the area of abortion? Well, because God says. Why do you believe it over here in this area of the religious debate? Because God says. Why are you living your life like that as a family? Why are you as a husband doing this or as a wife doing that? Why are you doing this? Well, because God says. Or how about this? Because we all know it, moms and dads, parents, Right? And you you have the kid in front of you They're having a sinful moment What's the ultimate thing you finally go to? What do you say? Hey, God says And what's the probably most commonly quoted in the Christian household Honor your father and your mother For goodness sakes, right? What do we say every time? Because God says Now watch If the child says to you as a parent Right? So It's time for a beating No, I'm just joking, okay it's just kidding. Okay. We'll edit that out. No, I'm just joking. I mean a Christian beating. A very loving, a loving, you see, their their heart is connected to their butt cheek. And so it goes one direction. Okay. I'm not talking about a real beating. A very Christian loving beating. A gracious spanking. There you go. Okay. Also, why do you spank your kids? Because God says. Okay. Um, hi, CPS. No, I'm just joking. Um <laughs> But you know that, that this is where the debate rages. Rage I told you, sola scriptura has has a lot to do with all of life, not just the debate between us and Rome. This ha- sola scriptura is happening in the moments of the debate with the child. Right? Stop arguing with me. And they keep coming, and you say, "Honor your father and your mother." Why? Because God says. Now that's the end of the debate, right? What did I just do as a dad when my child is in sin? I just appealed to an authority above me, right? You see me as an authority right now, but apparently my authority's not doing it for you, right? At that moment, my child was just not that into me, right? But what do I do as a dad? I say, God says, honor your father and your mother, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. What am I appealing to? I'm appealing immediately to the ultimate, God says. And that is the fundamental thing for believers. God says. That is the ultimate claim of Sola Scriptura, because God says. Now, just a quick side, and we're going to get right to the text here, and we're going to do a brief, I don't have a lot of verses to give to you today, because it's a standalone message, but just as a side to answer some questions, the church did not create the canon of scripture by authoritative declaration. This is important. I know I don't have time to develop this a lot today. I just need to say it in the discussion of Sola Scriptura because it does come up. People talk about Sola Scriptura. Well, you don't have the scriptures except for the church telling you what the Bible is. By the way, that is fallacious and not true. That's not how we know what the Bible is or have the Bible. The church didn't create the canon of scripture by authoritative declaration. I don't believe in these 66 books Because the church made an authoritative declaration. Here's your Bible. You believe that. We've created the word of God. That's not how it happened historically. That's not what it looked like. Here's the truth. The word of God created the church. The word of God created and formed the church. It wasn't the other way around. The word of God created the church. The church is the passive recipient of God's Revelation. The church is the passive recipient of God's revelation. Okay? Important. I know I can't develop that a lot today. I just needed to say that in this discussion on Sola Scriptura. Quick thing. Let's do it fast. Go to Genesis. Where the conflict began. Where the conflict began. Genesis chapter 2. And look at verse 15. You know it. It's a famous section. Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. It says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Think about the context for a second, right? God creates all these spectacular things. It's really amazing. And I just got to say as a side, I was driving home this week after doing some ministry um, in the place that shall not be named with people who shall not be named. Um, Pastor James got that. Um, it was Doug Wilson. I love him. Um, we were filming stuff up there and I, I had to drive back through snow, Idaho, Utah. I went to Salt Lake uh, all the way down. And I just have to tell you, there were several times on this drive, which was actually very dangerous and very exhausting, but several times where I had moments where either the sun was coming down or whatever it was doing, and I was in these spaces where I was thinking to myself several times, oh my goodness, every day God gives the most banging, amazing, incredible sunsets. It's better than any artist could do. And mine that I get to view is in 3D, right? We look at these amazing paintings. Pastor James this week was looking at like Monet or whoever in Colorado. He's like, hmm, hmm, there's some, hmm, there's beautiful lines and, hmm, right? We got people who, sorry, I'm just kidding. People, like, people do, like, you know, they sit in front of, like, you know, sip wine and look at, you know, paintings and go on to the next one. And people, like, put, like, a banana on the wall and duct tape it. And $150,000, like, art. It happens, right? Weird. I'm like, I am in the wrong job, right? People can put bananas on the wall and just, it's amazing, okay? Um, That was a joke, by the way. Um, But people look at these paintings that human beings create that are just on a canvas and they're just like it's spectacular it's amazing the artistry and the skill but every day you're driving around in God's creation and looking at God's creation especially these amazing Arizona sunsets it's the most incredible thing imaginable and it's you're in it like you're in it it's not just a canvas right you're in it it's all around you and the lights and the purple and And the the green and the red and all these crazy colors and every day god's like and there's another one And it's no problem. There's another one. Here's this beautiful mountain range and it's all glorious and it's incredible and All of that watch god creates all of that beginning of creation It's all amazing and it's huge and it's beyond them and there are these creatures put in the garden Right and god says you can do this, but don't do that and he offers no explanation Right God's not going, um, this, but not that. And he doesn't offer arguments to Adam and Eve, his creatures. He doesn't offer arguments. He doesn't appeal to any authority above himself, outside of himself. He doesn't say, um, this tree, but not that one because he says, right? Because that I do that with my kids. Why do I need to obey you? Because. God says, honor your father and your mother. I appeal to an ultimate authority outside of myself. When God gave a command in the garden to his creatures, he never appealed to something above himself. He said this, but not that. He didn't appeal to the why questions, right? Like, well, here's why you don't want to eat of that particular fruit. He didn't say because it tastes bad, right? Like, here's a, I'm saying this one, but not that one. And here's why it's icky. He didn't do that because it tastes bad. He didn't say, well, here's why, because it'll make you fat. Didn't say that either. He doesn't appeal to anything like, well, here's why you don't eat that tree because it's durian fruit and no one should ever eat that under any circumstance. If you don't believe me, I dare you to try it. I dare you. Go to Lily's Market and go buy some, and I want to hear about it. Make sure you film it, actually. I want to watch you do it. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't say this but not that because it tastes bad and it'll make you fat. He just says this but not that. The day you do, you'll die. What's he say? He makes a declaration. If you do it, the day you eat of it, you'll die. You'll surely die. So this but not that, and if you do, the day you do, you'll die. Now watch the story as it progresses. Genesis chapter 3 now, what happens? Here's another voice, conflicting with God's voice. What's God say? This, but not that. The day you do, you'll die. No appeals above, or below, or outside. No reasons why. No trying to rationalize with his creatures to say, you really should believe me, because A, B, C, D arguments. God says, this, that, die. And here's what happens. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? How does this conflict always begin? Hath God said. There you go. That's, that's what has plagued humanity since the beginning it is that fundamental challenge to god's word god says this but not that this is what's going to happen and here comes the crafty serpent that says what hath god said now let me let me let's 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 examine it did god really say let's question let's challenge that declaration let's challenge the claim god said it but did he really Hath God said that? Did He really say that? Did God actually say, "You shall not eat of any tree in the garden"? There's deception happening there. And the woman said to the serpent, "We may eat of the tree of the trees, the fruit of the trees in the garden." But God said, "Let's There it is. But God said, "You shall not eat of the, of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die." And here it is now again. What's plagued us from the beginning hath God said and then the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil very important here in terms of the knowing good and evil part. A lot of strange understandings of that particular portion, like knowing good and evil. Like then you really get to experience it. No, then you'll be like God. You'll be the one that determines what is right and what is wrong. You'll say it. You'll know it then. That's, you'll know. That'll be your knowledge. You'll determine what's right and what's wrong. God knows that if you do it, then you'll know for yourself what's right and what's wrong. Hath God said, there is the challenge Now, here's what I want to ask as you do this. Let's think about it now quickly. Again, standalone message. We don't have a lot of time here, but I want you to examine this. How should Eve and Adam have handled this conflict? God says, this but not that, you'll die. No reasoning above himself. No trying to give them convincing argumentation. This but not that. I'm God. Here's my word. The servant comes in and says, what? Hath God said. God really say that? Starts to question God's authoritative word, and then Satan denies it. You won't die. That's not true. God makes the claim, die. Satan says, won't die. And Satan says, when you do, your eyes will be opened, and then you'll know good and evil for yourself. Now, how should Adam and Eve have handled that conflict? Should Eve had said, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't even know if I'm going to like it Now, I won't eat it because I'm not even really sure I'm going to like how it tastes Now watch this. What if Adam and Eve had not eaten the fruit because they thought it looked icky And they actually said I'm not going to eat it because I think it looks icky Would they have obeyed God in that moment? Because they said it looks icky or what if Eve had said, one thing R.C. Sproul said on this particular text, what if she said, eh, I might get fat? What if she did that? What if she didn't eat of the fruit because she thought it would actually mess up her appearance? She didn't eat it externally. She's obedient, right? She didn't eat of the tree. But was she actually obedient? No, because the obedience is connected to the authoritative word of God. On what moral basis ought they to have actually moved forward in that? They should have moved forward with this. God says, and that settles it. God says, he spoke this. That is the foundation. He said, therefore, I believe that I'll obey that. So where's this conflict begin of sola scriptura? It begins in the garden. Hath God said, no, God didn't say. What we have there, watch, are two voices. What are the voices in the garden? You've got the voice of the creator himself, the eternal God, and you've got the voice of the devil. God says one thing, and you put the devil's words next to God's, and they conflict. That's how they should have handled the conflict. God says, but you're saying, you're wrong, Serpent," and they should have obeyed God. So that classic contrast begins at the very beginning of our Bibles. It's the foundation of all the rest. The fall enters, sin enters, death enters, and it enters at this point of the voice of God versus another voice. So how should they have handled that conflict? Sola Scriptura. God says. That's the rule. That's the foundation. Quick thing, Old Testament just a working out of this truth, this fundamental truth in Scripture, God says and tests everything else by that standard. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 13 in the law of God, Deuteronomy chapter 13, God gives his people a test for prophets, dreamers of dreams, those who actually give you truths from God. And here it is, we've quoted this thousands of times, outside of the Mormon temple in Mesa, Arizona, and in Salt Lake City. In Deuteronomy 13.1, here's the test for God's people. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So here, in this particular passage for God's people, God says this. If somebody comes and they have this miraculous ministry, it looks so legit. Like they're making legs longer. People are getting slain in the Spirit. People are rising from the dead. I mean, the miraculous is in their midst. God says... If even the wonder comes to pass, however, the prophet or dreamer of dreams leads you after other gods, gods which you have not known, that's how you know they're a false prophet. So again, here's another example of that classic contrast in scripture, that conflict. You've got the voice of God laid down as the foundation and the other voice must be tested by the previous revelation. It's in the garden, it's in Deuteronomy 13. How were the people of God to know whether this prophet or dreamer of dreams was representing the true God? Here's the answer. If they lead you after a different God, different from how I've revealed myself to you, that's how you know they're a false prophet. Now watch, how does this work out in our conflict in the world? Will you see this conflict happening between us and the Latter-day Saints, us and Islam, Us and the watchtower us and christian scientists us and david koresh and all the rest. What do we do? We say what are you saying? Okay, but god says this so when joseph smith says in the king fall at discourse We've imagined and supposed that god was god from all eternity I will refute that idea and take away and do away the veil so that you may see and he says you've got to learn to become gods yourselves the same way all gods have done before you. Now, did you know that in Joseph Smith's early um, ministry that there were claims to the miraculous in his, earth, or in his early ministry? Many claims to the miraculous happened often. It happened, happens often in many different cults. So here you have people who are claiming even the miraculous in early, early Mormonism, but how do you know Joseph Smith was a charlatan, a fraud, a false prophet? Because God says... When Joseph says that God was not eternally God, and that you could become a God one day yourself, you look at the Bible itself, and it says Psalm 90 verse 2. From eternity into eternity, you are God. Joseph Smith's a liar. He's a fraud. He's a charlatan. Why? Because God says, and then Joseph says. When you look at the scriptures, you know that God has already said over and over again, Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Is there a God besides me? Indeed there is no other God. I know not one. Joseph Smith said that there's many gods, a plurality of gods, and you can become one one day. That's how I know Joseph Smith is a false prophet. And you go down the line. You take God's word and you compare it to Muhammad's word. God's word, and you compare it to Charles Taze Russell's word. God's word, and you compare it to the word of your governor. God's word, and you compare it to the word of your mom and dad. And you test, and you see, is this the truth? How do I know? Because God says. That's the foundation of Sola Scriptura. Scripture is the breathed out revelation of God. The origin of it is the spirit of God carried people along to write what they wrote. It is the very voice of God, God speaking. Quick thing, you know this, you've heard it a lot from this pulpit. When Jesus was in an early controversy, what did he say? He said, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? What does the Lord Jesus do with scripture? He equates the reading of scripture with God speaking. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Powerful truth there. Now, just a quick thing from the New Testament itself. Again, today's a smattering of verses. That was Old Testament as an example of the test they were to actually apply to teachers and prophets. In the New Testament, not exhaustive, you've got the Apostles' formula, number one. The Apostles' formula. Have you noticed? Just look at the book of Romans. The book of Romans. Read the first four chapters of the book of Romans and notice how the apostle Paul, an inspired apostle, actually buttresses his point. How does he, how does he demonstrate his point? Not on his own authority as a lot of charlatans often do. What do they say? Well, this is true about God. Well, how do I know that? Because I'm speaking for God because I know because I'm the prophet because I'm, The leader, I'm the one who's given this... I've gotten this revelation on my authority. What's the Apostle Paul do in Romans? When he is making his point about the gospel, he actually points where? To the Old Testament revelation of God. And he says what? What does the Scripture say? He roots his arguments in the words of the living God. He said, what does the Scripture say? Scripture says, God says... In Scripture, you see the apostles appeal to that as their foundation. Scripture teaches, therefore, you can believe that this is true. One note, as a side note, uh, neither the Lord Jesus or the apostles ever quoted from the Apocrypha with the divine formula of what does Scripture say, anything like that. Were they aware of the Apocrypha? Of course they were. Did they quote from the Apocrypha at times? Never with the divine formula. They saw it as sometimes useful historical information. The Apostle Paul even quoted from Eratus of Cilicia and Epimenides of Crete. These are pagan poets and prophets. It's not saying that they are actually inspired. But in Scripture, when the apostles are appealing to something as true, they say, What does the Scripture say? Next. We look at two points here, and we're almost done here. One. When the Lord Jesus had a conflict, we read this at the beginning. Look at Matthew 15. When he had a conflict in his day, he could have appealed, because he's God in the flesh, to his own authority. And at times he does. He has that right. Yahweh has that right. Yahweh in the flesh can speak authoritatively. Jesus can appeal to his own authority. And it was one of the things that shocked them is when he stands up in the synagogue and he's pre- preaching and he's teaching, the people are like, wow, he teaches as one having authority and not like our scribes. Why? Because the scribes would say something like, well, you know, this is true because Rabbi so-and-so says it, because Rabbi so-and-so says it. Jesus comes in and he uses his own authority as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. However, he teaches us something important here in Matthew 15. Very important. I already read it, so I won't read it again. But in a conflict with what it would have been seen as the tradition of the church, you need to do this. Why? Because the church has always taught this. You need to do this. Why? Because it's a tradition of the elders. This would have been seen in some way, sort of as a kind of sacred deposit, in a sense. Like, this is our very sacred tradition. You've got to do this to be right with God, you've got to do this to be obedient to God. And Jesus handles that kind of controversy with this same contrast. He says, God says, and he quotes Moses, Old Testament. He says, God says this, he says, but you say that. And so what does he do? He lines up God's claim with their claim, and he says, thus, you make void, you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Jesus gives us this premier example, how are we to actually even handle our own religious traditions? He takes the word of God and says, this is supreme. Your tradition has to not make this voids. And he took what had been very cherished tradition by the Jews of his day. And he says, not true. And you've actually voided God's word because of your tradition. That's how Jesus handled a tradition in his day that was seen as a very valuable, beautiful religious tradition. Next. And this is just a few pages away. Another example, Matthew chapter 19. Another example here. This particular controversy is a little different. This particular controversy is related to a controversy over divorce in the first century. Now, I have some uh, messages on this. I encourage you to go listen to them. Some good resources out there on this particular subject. But in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is dealing now with a particular form of divorce that was popular in this time period. Uh, It was the Hillelite marriage controversy clause. It was the any cause divorce. What they were saying was this. Hey, look, as long as you have a certificate of divorce, it doesn't matter what the reason was, any cause, as long as there's an official certificate. So there was one school, Rabbi Hillel, that was the any cause divorce, and another school of Rabbi Shammai, and they were known as the Shammaites. And so this particular controversy Jesus is dealing with, he's dealing with a cultural, moral issue. Cultural, moral issue. This is like they're talking about what's happening at the legislature kind of thing. Like, is it really moral to be doing this in society and culture? And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 19, as they ask the question in verse 3, is this. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife? Here it is, for any cause. There's the any cause divorce. He answered, Have you not read? So what's Jesus do? I mean he could have gone into an interesting debate about what's good for society. Right? We do that so much. Now, there, there are good, healthy moments for, like, what's good for society. Like, if we're arguing against abortion in our culture today, I want to stand on the Word of God as the primary reference points. But then I can move my way out, of course, and incidentally talk about the kind of damage that abortion does in a woman's life. How it hurts her heart for the rest of her life. Even repentant sisters in Christ who have been redeemed and forgiven and cleansed. And are righteous in Jesus at times still struggle with the consequences of that past and it's always something that impacts we could talk about how it destroys families and culture and society and how this is true about our day we're killing all of our children at such a high rate that we cannot even match what's necessary to go on as a people Because we're killing so many children, our birth rates are so low because of abortion and how we think about children, it's changing actually our future. You can talk about those things. What's good for society, how it benefits society, of course. But Jesus actually says something else when he's dealing with a controversy, a cultural controversy in his day. He says this, have you not read? There it is. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. So the Lord Jesus here appeals to the word of God as the foundation. There's an example of how Jesus handles controversy. What does God say? What are you saying? What does God say? What is he saying? What does God say? What is she saying? What does God say? That's the foundation. Next, I'll just point you to 1 Corinthians 4, 6. It's in your bulletins today, that formulation of the early Christian creed. I think it's powerful. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying. Do not go beyond what is written. So here you have, in the early formation of the church, an inspired apostle appealing to what is apparently an early Christian creed. This is what they were saying to one another. They were saying this. They were confessing it. It was something they were passing along as a tradition, but it was a tradition that was rooted in biblical truth, and that was do not go beyond what is written. Another example, and it's a famous one, you know it, in Acts 17, verse 11, scripture pays a compliment. God in his word pays a compliment to the believers in Berea. Why? It says they were more noble-minded than the ones in Thessalonica. Why? Because when the apostle Paul came to them, an inspired apostle with authority comes to them, preaching to them, it says, what about them? They searched the scriptures daily to do what? To see if what Paul was saying was true. So the Berean Christians were saying, Paul, what's that? Okay, what's that? And then they were going to the word of God to see if what he was saying was actually true, more noble minded than those in Thessalonica. They were testing the words of the Apostle Paul. How many of us, if Paul came in here right now and started preaching, you would just be like, like just, t- just take it all in and not thinking critically, ultimately, right? Just accepting, but they're like, well, hang on now. Wait, 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 wait. Let, me, let me see. Let me, well, they were like this. Let me see, let me, let me see. Let me, let me see. Where, where does it say that? They're testing what the Apostle Paul says. Okay, final points here. Philosophically speaking, If you don't start with God says, if you don't start with God's self-attesting word as the starting point, listen, this is huge. You lose all meaning. You lose all appeals to purpose. You lose all beauty. You lose all truth. You lose all goodness. Beauty, truth, goodness, gone without God's word as the foundation of it all. What did Will Provine, the famous atheist professor, say about the world apart from God? No God's revelation. No God as creator. He said there's no meaning, no ultimate purpose, no ultimate meaning in life, no goal-directed forces. The universe is going nowhere. And he says there is no afterlife. He says we live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. When you don't start, philosophically speaking, with God's word, God says he's the creator, we're the creatures. God says he made all this for his glory. God says the heavens declare the glory of God. God says male and female. God says love your neighbor. When you don't start with God says as the reference point, you lose everything. There is no logic apart from the triune God of Scripture. No meaningful appeal to it. There is no appeal to scientific method. There is no uniformity in nature. There is no purpose. There is no governance. There is no sovereignty. And there's no ultimate ethics either. How many of you guys have seen our discussions with atheists on the street? Or you've seen our discussions with atheists in formal debates? When they get to the question of ultimate ethics or meaning, they'll even say, there are no ultimate ethics. I asked Dan Barker once, famous atheist on the radio. Uh, Dr. White has two or three debates with, with him. Uh, well-known atheist. I asked him in a radio debate once. I said, regarding rape. I said, well, in your perspective, like, rape is not really wrong or evil, is it? And ultimately he said, in the cosmic, cosmic thing? No. No, it's not really wrong. There's no ultimate purpose. Do you see how important God says is? Because if God says male and female, if God says valuable, if God says love your neighbor, if God says rape is an abomination, then I have a foundation to say, um, contraire, Mr. Barker, it is evil, there is meaning there, and that deserves punishment. Do you see? God says is the foundation. Without God's self-attesting word as a starting point, you lose everything, philosophically speaking. Now, here's the thing, too, to consider. How do you settle disputes? This is what will always come up. I was just talking to my friend this week about this. I did an interview with him. Two questions always will come up when someone says this but not that. Watch. This but not that. Two questions always asked. One, why? Two, says who? Like if somebody says, you ought to do this. And you ought not do that. What does everybody ask? Why? Says who? Those are questions that are always going to be asked. You don't get away from them because you're an atheist. Why? Says who? Everybody will ask them. And everybody will have a God of their system. Notice this. Watch. People are afraid to say as Christians because God says. Scripture. God says. That's the foundation. We're afraid to say that today as evangelicals. We are. We're afraid afraid to say it in the public square. We're afraid to say it in the legislature. We are. We weren't always, but we are today. Largely afraid to say that. Please notice this. Please hear this. Everybody believes God says. It's just a question of which God. You see, for the Muslim, they say what? Allah says. Allah says. For the Mormon, they'll say, well, Elohim says, God the Father says. And for the secularist, humanist, they also have a God of their system. If you say, well, why should we do this? Well, because Demas says, democracy, Demas, the people, we've declared, is it right to murder unborn children in the womb? People say, why? Says who? And the people today say, well, we have said, we've declared via this court declaration or this law, we say it is appropriate and moral to do such a thing to a child in the womb. You see, they haven't escaped the inescapable, necessary thing. There's always an ultimate. And here's the thing, the ultimate is either going to be found in me, and you'll find this a lot as you do evangelism at ASU. You ask somebody, well, why, why are you doing that? And why are you saying I ought to do this? People will say, well, it's just my preference. I feel that it's true. It's my standard for truth. There's no ultimate standards out there, but that's my standard. So I'm the God of my system. I'm the ultimate appeal. You'll also have people that will say, my group is the ultimate. God says, because the group says. Or you'll have people appeal to the power of the state. Happens in China today right? Why? And says who? What do you think the Chinese government says? We say. They're the God of the system. We're the ultimate voice. Or, and here's where this gets tricky, people might say, because the church says. How do you know that's true? Well, because the church says. That's a dangerous, dangerous thing. The church does say true things. But we don't believe truths because the church says. The church holds the truth up, right? We don't believe things because the church says. We believe things because the Bible says, the word of God says. But this will impact you. This is my last word here, just quick. It'll impact you every day. You might have a strong day today as a believer worshiping God here Have a beautiful moment of worship with God, broken heart over sin, fellowship with your believer, and then on Tuesday, you get attacked with the slander. And then on Tuesday, the gossip. And then on Tuesday, the car runs off the road and kills a family member. And then on Wednesday, you lose the job. Or whatever the case may be, there's going to be times where you're going to have a rough Go. Spiritually speaking, you'll have all kinds of broken, distorted self-talk. You're not worthy. God's far off. You're not loved. He doesn't care about you anymore, right? You should leave your wife. Whatever the case, whatever it is, I deserve better. Like these are voices that will come up. And sola scriptura, this fundamental truth of the Word of God as the reference point, as the starting point, is something that had better be in your heart and your mind if you want freedom, if you want healing. How are you going to handle the moments of loneliness? How? How are you going to handle the moment where you feel a lack of pleasure and delight? Because here's what can happen. As a believer, a child of God, you can fall Into loneliness. Succumb to it completely and feel like God is so far off, right? And you feel so lost and depression sets in. Totally sets in. It's rooted in you now. And you stop listening to this and you start listening to your circumstances. You start listening to external voices. You start listening to your own inner monologue. And what do you do? Now, it's not that you don't need a God. Now you start looking for other gods to satisfy the loneliness. The lack of pleasure. What do people do when they're broken? They have no pleasure. So where do they go? They go to the cocaine. They have no pleasure. So where do they go? They go to the ecstasy. They have no pleasure. So where do they go? They go to the alcohol. They have no pleasure. So where do they go? They go to the prostitutes. What is it? Idolatry. What is it? It's worship. Something happens between here and there. Before I start worshiping the false god, something is wrong at the beginning. Maybe I'm lost, maybe I'm dead of my sins and trespasses, maybe I'm still in the flesh, I don't have the Spirit of God, I don't know God, right? And something happens here to get me there. Why do I pursue the false God? Something is wrong. But even as a believer, when I fall into sin, something happens in between here and the sin, right? And a lot of it has to do with, what does God say? I fall into this place of despair and depression and loneliness and lack of pleasure and all the rest. And I feel lost and not loved by God and all the rest. Why? Because I'm believing my circumstances or my self-talk over God says. God says. And, you know, listen, you can say at church on Sunday, amen, Pastor Jeff. That's the truth. That's the word of God. I'm going to believe that. But you know when it really impacts you, when it really matters, is this Thursday morning. After a bad day at work the day before. Or the bad news you got on Wednesday nights. See, that's when, this, that's when this becomes Sola Scriptura. It becomes something so much more valuable than the debate between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. This is the substance of it all. Everything is found in In this foundation. And so think about it in all those categories, all those ways of discussion and getting to the point. God says, and that's why I believe it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless the message that went out today. I pray you use it for your glory and for your kingdom. I pray that you would take these truths, store them up in our hearts and our minds. Let us be transformed by them. And let us proclaim them with confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.